Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Okay, so this week, um, we have a double portion. It's Chukat and Balak. And it's a double portion that is packed. I mean, it is full of incredible stories and really mysteries that take place um, where, where there's really hidden mysteries of the Lord in these passages. And there, there's so much that we could talk about. We could, we could take weeks unpacking these two portions. And this week we get to condense it all down into a short message. So um, we're gonna, I'm just going to do the micro machines guy thing and just talk really fast and everybody try to keep up. I'm just kidding. No, but what, so what we are going to do today is we're going to follow up on last week's message. And I think what's happening is we're um, going to ha- have this week and probably next week too discussion which carries over from last week. So last week we talked about God's covenant of salt with Aaron and his descendants to serve as ministers before him and how that covenant will stand as long as there is day and night according to the scriptures. Along with that, we discussed how the writers of Hebrews makes it clear that Yeshua is a high priest in the heavenly temple and that he cannot be a priest on the earthly temple because he's not a descendant of Aaron. Rather, he is a high priest in the heavens according to the order of Melchizedek, which is a better priesthood, and he ministers in a better tabernacle. Now, one of the things that we talked about is how the priesthood that he serves in in the heavenly does not nullify or cancel the earthly tabernacle or Levitical priesthood ministry. And one way to think about this is that um, if we believe that the heavenly reality does away with the physical, then we kind of have some things out of order because the heavenly reality existed before the physical reality. And God created the physical reality to give us a picture, a shadow of what the heavenly reality is, and for the physical temple and the priesthood to perform relational and restorative activities between God and man and between God and the whole world. So the earthly is a shadow of the heavenly. The earthly is lesser than the heavenly, but the earthly is still glorious. God made it glorious because it reflected his temple in the heavens. Now, after service, I was asked a couple of really good questions. Um, the questions, the two questions that stood out to me were, well, how is this relevant to me if I'm not going to be offering sacrifices? And then the second was, if the, if the, priests are still serving in the temple, they wouldn't be doing sacrifices, would they, because of the work of Yeshua. He's the one sacrifice for all. So both of these are excellent questions and really very important. And I feel like if we are going to talk about the priesthood and the coming temple and not talk about and not address these questions, then we're doing a a disservice to the body. 
So I want to spend some time on that, but those are two very deep questions that would take way more than one message to go over. So I'm planning on at least two. God willing, uh, we'll, we can cover it in two. If not, we'll see what the Lord uh, allows for. But this week, we're going to answer the, or attempt to answer the second question, even drawing from this week's portion to help us understand it. The first question, though, I did want to at least touch on kind of as a prelude to next week. So the first question was, how is this relevant to me if I'm never going to offer sacrifices? Okay, so we're not going to touch on it till we're not going to go over it in detail until next week. But just to, you know, as a safeguard, July 4th is coming up. You're all excited to fire up the grill, cook some meat. But just buy it from the store. No sacrifices, okay? Besides, now the thing is, too, with the sacrifices, you can't offer them up right now because there is no temple standing. If you were to attempt to uh, offer any sacrifices, it would be a violation of Torah. Now, that's one thing, okay? So we, we can't offer them today. But what we'll talk about next week is somewhat about how it's important for us to understand the function of the temple in several respects, but a couple real briefly are just the idea that the temple actually performs restorative action, as I mentioned before. It plays a part in transforming this world and making it a place ready for God's presence. And then also, it's important for us to know from the aspect of being able to understand what takes place in the end days, if there were a temple rebuilt in our days, then what would we think of it? How would, how would we approach that? How would we express uh, our thoughts around that? And how would we represent the kingdom to others? Now, whether it's for our life or our descendants' life, Yeshua is returning. And there are going to be events, even the, re the rebuilding of a temple and a desolation of the temple that occurs in those days. So we need to have a good foundation for understanding those things. So the second question was, would the priests offer sacrifices anymore because Yeshua is the one sacrifice for all? Now, it's true, as I mentioned before, there's no sacrifices today because there's no temple, nor has there been sacrifices for almost 2,000 years. But if there were a temple, would it be okay to bring blood sacrifices? Or would it be an affront to the work of Yeshua? That's a major question. And where we have to figure this out is to look at the scripture. The first scripture that we want to take a look at is in Acts 21. So the apostles, including the disciples of Yeshua and Paul, did not think there was any problem to bring sacrifices in the temple. Now, we're about to read in Acts 21. Acts 21 occurs in approximately the year 57. That's eight or nine years after the council at Jerusalem from Acts 15. It's 27 years approximately from the death and resurrection of Yeshua. And we're, that's, that's the context that we're coming into here. This is long after the death and resurrection. Paul is going to Jerusalem and here beginning in verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, 
and all the elders were present. Okay, so James, the brother of Yeshua, was over all the elders, all the council at Jerusalem, all the chief leaders who were believers in Yeshua, who were chiefs over the messianic congregations. So, James, so Paul goes into them, and after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, being in Yeshua. They are all zealous for the Torah, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the Torah. Now you read this passage and you say, Chris, I don't see anything in there about the sacrifices. What are you talking about? All you did was tell me that there are believers in Yeshua who are zealous for the Torah. It's not that the mention of sacrifices is not in here. It's that we often don't know what these words mean that we're reading. Okay, so when he says, there are four men under a vow. Okay, what do the vows relate to? Vows often relate to sacrifices, but there's a specific vow that we even brought up last week called the Nazarite vow, wherein which a person sanctifies himself, sets himself or herself apart unto the Lord, and it's with a, a holiness that is likened unto the priesthood. And they set themselves apart to draw near to God, and at the conclusion of their vow, they bring a set of offerings a set of sacrifices before the Lord consisting of sin offerings, elevation offerings, and peace offerings. All of these being blood offerings before the Lord. And the hair of the one who is bringing this offering is shaved and placed on the altar. Okay, so this is specifically speaking of a Nazarite vow. People who are under a vow, who are going to pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Paying their expenses is purchasing the sacrifices and bringing them before the priest. So they're offering multiple sacrifices, sin, elevation, and peace offerings. And not only is Paul going to do it, but the elders are encouraging him to do so in order to prove that he keeps the Torah, that he did not teach people in the diaspora outside of Israel to turn away from the Torah. He did not teach them to not circumcise their children. He didn't tell them to stop observing the customs and traditions. Now, Paul walked faithfully upholding the Torah his whole life. The elders knew that he did. People who believed in Yeshua in Jerusalem did. And they set out to prove that they did it by showing the, the sacrifices in the temple. Now, some people say that Paul brought these in order to appease 
the Jews. That's outlandish. It's outlandish because the idea that Paul would seek to gain favor in the eyes of man rather than God is just unthinkable. The idea that he would spit in the face of Yeshua by bringing a blood offering, if the blood offering was an affront to Yeshua, is beyond thinkable. Okay, but rather what the church has done is has agreed with his accusers and said, yeah, he taught against the Torah, he taught against circumcision, he taught against the traditions. Oops. Now, the church certainly didn't mean to join the accusers, but that's precisely where they have positioned themselves. And so we've, we've often misread the epistles. We've often misread Hebrews, which we talked about some last week. I have nothing against the epistles or against Hebrews. I think they're wonderful. I think they've been misinterpreted and misunderstood throughout the ages and have done damage to the body and even to the kingdom message of Yeshua. So when we talk about these things, about trying to set right our understanding of the priesthoods, trying to set right our understanding of the sacrifices, trying to set right our understanding of the work of Yeshua and the atonement that he brings, we are seeking to bring a restoration more than a rebuke. Okay, so when I make the, the statements of where has the church positioned itself, I'm not trying to condemn the church. I'm trying to help the church come to understand a deeper aspect of the kingdom so that they might rightly represent Yeshua in every dimension. The church does represent Yeshua in wonderful dimensions and has done incredible work throughout the ages. So we don't come seeking to condemn and to cast down, but rather to edify through, um, well, correction. Okay. Now, if the apostles were willing to bring sacrifices in the temple, if they still came to the temple and worshipped, if they still met in the temple, then they had to know something that we don't know. Okay? Now, they understood many aspects of metaphor and great depths of the Scripture. They knew that Yeshua, and we've talked about this, we may even talked about it a little bit last week, they understood that Yeshua was not a literal Levitical sacrifice according to the Torah because he does not meet the criteria. Just like he doesn't meet the criteria to be a priest on the earth in the, in the temple, he does not meet the criteria of being a physical sacrifice in the temple. He's a man and not an animal. He died outside the city walls, not in the temple, which actually will kind of play into this week's portion. <clears throat> His blood was not poured on the altar. He was executed by Romans, not sacrificed according to the priesthood. He died by horrifically painful means, being crucified, not by the painless method prescribed for how animals would be killed, and also, not to mention the Torah, forbids human sacrifice. But despite the fact that he was not a literal Levitical sacrifice, the apostles still knew that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if he's the Lamb of God, but not a literal sacrifice, how does that work? How does he actually accomplish atonement for us? 
And how is this, how is his death and his blood not in conflict with the blood of bulls and goats? Okay. Last week we talked about how the Melchizedek priesthood, the priesthood of Yeshua, is one that precedes the Levitical priesthood, and he, ser- he serves in a heavenly tabernacle, not made with human hands, but established by God. So he serves in a better temple, in a better priesthood, and he offers better blood in that temple. Blood that can do what the earthly blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish. Okay, so just as the Melchizedek priesthood serves in a different jurisdiction than the Levitical priesthood, so too does the blood of Yeshua serve in a a different jurisdiction than the blood of the bulls and the goats. The blood of bulls and goats is not acceptable in the heavenly tabernacle because it must be cleansed with greater blood. The blood of a man is not fit on the altar of God on the earth because God has given the blood of the animals for that purpose. Now the blood of bulls and goats is sufficient for what God intended it to be on the earth and how it would provide atonement for man on earth and how it would cleanse vessels that were set apart and even the tabernacle itself that are set apart under the service of God. We know it is effective for those things. It's even effective for taking the identity of the one bringing the offering into the presence of God. But it's not able to take a person into the heavenly temple in the presence of God, nor take them into everlasting life, which is what the blood of Yeshua does. It's a better blood with a better purpose. But the two do not conflict with one another. And think about it in this way. If the blood of bulls and goats was never able to remove sin and never able to take us into everlasting life, then in what way does it compete with Yeshua's blood that does those things? It it doesn't actually compete. What it is is these are parallel Um, offerings, different purposes in different jurisdictions, just as the priesthood is parallel and not canceling each other out. Um, Let's look in, I'm going to try and keep this part brief. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. The, The verses preceding this, the writer of Hebrews is noting how it is how we are approaching in the heavenly as opposed to the earthly. In verse 22, he says, You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, the writer of Hebrews now begins to compare the blood of Yeshua with the blood of Abel. And that's interesting. He says that it's better than the blood of Abel. So throughout the entire book of Hebrews, you see so many times comparisons 
of one thing to another, always something that is good versus something that is better. And it's this, it's a Hebrew principle called Valchomer, which is taking from light to heavy. And from light to heavy is not from bad to good. It's comparing two things that are both good, but finding how the one is better than the other. It's not, it's not hard to take something bad and compare it to something good. It is hard to take two good things and explain how one thing is better than the other good things. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing throughout his book, comparing one very good thing to one that is even greater. And now he's saying that the blood of Abel speaks a good word, but the blood of Yeshua speaks an even better word. Now, why are we talking about the blood of Abel? Okay, Because most of the time in the book of Hebrews, it's all about well, the, the blood of bulls and goats versus the blood of Yeshua. But there's another dimension that he's uncovering here. It's about the blood spilled by the righteous Abel versus the blood spilled by the righteous Yeshua. Now, Abel, in Hebrews 11:14, the scripture says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, Though he died, he still speaks. It's like, hmm, that's interesting. So the faith of Abel still speaks to us today. There's one aspect, he brought an offering. The blood of that offering can speak and that it was a good offering. But then there's also the blood of Abel that was poured out by his brother Cain that still speaks a word. Because the death of the righteous atones for the sins of the nations. And this is what we're really going to get in to talk about later on today. The death of Abel and his blood speaks a good word because he was righteous, but he was killed unjustly by his brother. Now, his, God called his brother to repent and to turn from having a hard heart because sin was crouching at the door. But Cain refused to repent and instead struck his brother down out of jealousy. Does this sound familiar? Right? You have Yeshua coming and calling the children of Israel to repent. But they didn't heed the call to repent, but instead, out of baseless hatred, killed their brother. And the blood, the, the blood of Yeshua that was spilled speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, who in a like way was killed unrighteously. Okay, so I mentioned the death of the righteous atones for the sins of the nations. This is the primary thing, I think, that the disciples knew that made them understand the work, the atoning work of the death of Yeshua apart from the Levitical sacrificial system. Even though they could see all the metaphors and the connections of how we can find Yeshua, our Messiah, and the redemption that he brings represented in each one of the sacrifices that are brought, they understood that all those sacrifices bring an atonement, they bring a reconciliation, they bring a closeness to God, but there's this additional dimension that Yeshua brings through his suffering that he endured unjustly that brings an atonement that the sacrifices could never bring. Okay. So now we've gone into the intro. 
Sorry, that's kind of the intro. Now we're going to get into a little bit of the portion, and I'm going to try to go through the high-level points of the death of the righteous bringing atonement for the sins of the nations. The first of the double portion today is Hukat, which is a statute of God that is understood to be beyond comprehension. It's beyond human logic. It's one of those things where you don't understand, but you know that it's God's word, and so you obey and you heed it, even though you can't explain it. Most of the time today, we want to say, if we can understand it, we'll do it. But if we don't understand it, it doesn't mean anything. Well, the reality is our thoughts are limited. Our understanding is limited. We're called to grow in understanding, but one thing we're called to do is to walk in obedience and faithfulness, trusting God. So even when we don't understand, we still go forward. We listen to his word and we obey. So this week, the first thing, okay, within this first portion of Hukat, you have the story of the red heifer, you have the story of the rock that brought forth water, and you have the story of the copper serpent raised up in the wilderness. Now, we're going to start out with the red heifer in Numbers 19, 1 through 10. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood, with its dung shall it be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and after, afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Now I'll stop reading here, but then... These ashes of the red heifer are used to cleanse a person who has come into contact with death. So once the contamination from death is removed from them, they can once again come to the temple, offer sacrifices, and draw near to God. But as long as they are contaminated with death, they cannot come to the temple. So the ashes of the red heifer are critical for the temple service, for both the priesthood and for those who want to come and bring offerings to be able to come and draw near to God. Now, as we come into Hukat, we're coming into the 40th year in the wilderness. The tabernacle has stood for 39 years. So if this is required to be able to have the temple service, which started 39 years prior, 
Why is it written here in the Torah and not written back in Exodus as the tabernacle was being inaugurated? That's a question that the sages asked and said, well, why is this here? And one of the answers that they give for why it's here is what is immediately following these verses in Exodus, I mean, in Numbers 20. Verse 1, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zen in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Okay, so Miriam, the sages say that the water from the rock flowed in Miriam's merit. Okay? And they speak of her death as being actually serving as an atonement for the nation. They, they say that her death is mentioned immediately in such close proximity to the red heifer because God is wanting to pull our attention to this idea of the death of the righteous atoning for the sins of the nation. And if we were to look throughout this passage, when God tells Moses to go and to speak to the rock, in Numbers 20, 13, Moses goes and he, actually just before this, Moses strikes the rock and God tells him that he's not going to enter into the promised land because of what he's done. And in verse 13 of Numbers 20, the scripture says, these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Okay? Through them is understood to be through Aaron and Moses, because they were not going to be able to enter the promised land. He was sanctified by those who were nearest to him. Which actually brings us to another time when God was sanctified through those who were closest to him. Back in Leviticus 10, verse 3. After Nadav and Abihu died, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near to me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. Now why do I mention this? Why do I mention this connection between Moses having to die so the children of Israel could enter into the land? He's dying for the nation. Nadab and Abihu died. Okay? Now, when Nadab and Abihu died, they had been bringing offerings in the temple, but they were the righteous, they were righteous men in Israel. They were even called up onto the mountain at the time that Moses went up with the 70 elders. And they are again mentioned in, in Leviticus 16. In Leviticus 16, this is the chapter that speaks about the Day of Atonement. And it opens up saying, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the, seat, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So once again, we have a passage that, does not, that brings something into it that appears to not be necessary for the passage. Because God's going to talk all about the Day of Atonement, but he leads in saying, after the death of Aaron's son, Nadav and Abihu, those who were closest to God, 
who God was sanctified through are mentioned in connection with the Day of Atonement. And the sages say it's because God wanted the children of Israel to know that the death of the righteous atones for the sins of the nation. So we have multiple occurrences of this in the Torah where God connects the death of one with an atonement, with a cleansing that takes place. The Day of Atonement being the day of forgiveness, the day of setting right relationship between man and God, and then the death of the red heifer, which cleanses from death so that a person may enter into God's presence. Now, with, it, with introducing that idea, this is ultimately a key foundation for the work of Yeshua as being the one who's bringing the, the ultimate day of atonement and bringing the ultimate cleansing from death. Okay, because the cleansing of death that the offerings bring from the, from, uh, the ashes of the red heifer is effective on earth, but not in the heavenly and not for everlasting life. In Hebrews 9, 13 through 14, The scripture says that the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, so speaking specifically about this cleansing we're talking about today, if they sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So this is another example of the call of a Homer. He says this one thing is very good in accomplishing its purpose. But how much more, how much better is that of Yeshua to take it to an entirely different le level who in the eternal spirit offered himself to purify our conscience, not just the flesh, so that we can serve the living God and actually take us into everlasting life. Now, you know, when I mentioned the way that Yeshua died, his death parallels more of the red heifer death than the, than the other offerings. For example, we spoke about how he died outside the camp. The red heifer was taken outside the camp. The priest observes the slaughtering, but does not do the slaughtering of the red heifer. Just like the priesthood observed the crucifixion of Yeshua but it was the Romans who carried it out. The blood was sprinkled from the red heifer toward the tent of meeting, but not on the altar. Yeshua's blood fell on the earth. When they're burning the cow for the red heifer, cedar, hyssop, and crimson thread are poured in into the fire. Well, that's a picture of the cross and the hyssop being used to offer up Yeshua vinegar to drink, and then his blood pouring down. There's many connections here that point us to the purification from death that Yeshua brings, that brings everlasting life, that is beyond anything that could be done by the sacrifices themselves. So, I'm going to quickly go through 
a little bit of the aspects of understanding the death of the righteous, but we're not going to go to go through it in great detail. Um, we'll have to reserve that for a future day. I have done uh, some messages on that in the past. I'll try to find those and link them along with this week's message. Uh, additionally, First Fruits Design has a great teaching. Perhaps I'll just even link to that because they do such a good job of laying out a foundational understanding of how sin brings suffering and death, and that suffering and death serve as an atonement for sin itself. Okay, so... Thinking of how I can summarize this quickly. So, we know that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, and that sin introduces suffering into the world. Because before sin occurred, man was not suffering. There was no toil, there was no illness. But it entered in as a result of that. And a common teaching within Judaism is that sickness and suffering are tied to sin and they come as a punishment for sin and that they bring a degree of atonement for sin. Now we, we know that not all suffering is a result of an individual's sin. Um, for example, Yeshua speaks of the, the person who was born blind and deaf and his disciples ask, well, why? Why was it? Was it for his sin or his parents' sin? And Yeshua said, neither. He was like this so that God might be glorified in this moment. Okay? So not all of it comes from that. But Yeshua also didn't say, silly guys, suffering has nothing to do with sin. It's just the work of the devil. No, but rather, he essentially affirmed that, yes, that is a result of sin, but not always the direct cause Okay, so the wages of sin is death, and people do suffer for their sins. And it provides a degree of atonement. Um, in fact, uh, and I'm not going to read that. I'm going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to keep moving forward. Now, in Deuteronomy, the scripture does say that each person will be put to death for his own sin as opposed to his father's sin. So there's a personal accountability that comes into play here. But the sages wondered, why is it that the righteous should suffer greatly if it's sin that brings suffering? And so there, there's a challenge with that, right? If, if sin brings suffering but the righteous suffer, how is that justice in the grand scheme of God's measure-for-measure measure justice system. And so they came to understand that the righteous suffer not for their own sin, but for the sins of others, to bring an atonement for others. Now, as a qualification here, we know that no one except Yeshua was perfectly sinless, right? And so they're not trying to make the case that a person who walks righteously was perfect, such that they should never have any suffering, but rather it's, a, it's an understanding and explanation of how people who do walk in righteousness to a great degree of righteousness could end up suffering a lot. Okay? So they say there's purpose 
in the suffering. And there are stories that we could read in, in say, Luke 16 that would, that would uphold and uh, affirm that idea. Now, in 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20, the Scripture says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, and when you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay? So he's saying that the unmerited suffering is a gracious thing in the sight of God, and God can take that suffering and use it. He can use it for good. Now, I'll tell a couple of very brief things before we, before we wrap up here. There's a, a Talmudic story that says the Lord, and in the, in the story in Barahot 62b, the Lord stops a plague against Israel when he tells the angel of death, take a great man from among them through whose death many sins can be atoned for them. Right? So he's stopping a plague through the suffering of the righteous. And there's another one in Exodus Rabbah where Moses says, Will no time come when Israel shall have neither tabernacle or temple? What will happen with them then? The Holy One, blessed be He, replied, I will then take one of their righteous men and retain him as a pledge on their behalf in order that I may pardon all their sins. Okay. And there, there's more than this. I just wanted to give a brief flavor of that because the idea that God would take a righteous person's life for the purpose of pardoning the sins of others, it's not foreign to the concept in, in, in the Jewish thinking. And it's not foreign in the scriptures that we read of Moses even interceding for the children of Israel and offering himself up, saying, blot me out and spare them. Right? He knew, even at that time, that God would take a righteous one so that he might pardon the sins of others. And so this idea is really a key foundation to understanding the work of Yeshua because he came and lived a perfect life, completely without sin. And he willingly laid himself down as an offering for the people. Under, undergoing the most gruesome death, so it's the most unjust suffering and greatest suffering to the most righteous person you can imagine. And when you think about the scales of justice and how they would react to that, they're off the charts. The scales of justice have, like, <laughs> they've been tipped to the degree that the amount of grace merited by Yeshua to be poured out on mankind from the very beginning to the end of time, has been accomplished. Right? The, his, he knew, the Scripture says, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He knew there was purpose in his suffering. God didn't take away the suffering. He allowed the suffering to happen because he knew it had a greater purpose. And that purpose was the redemption of all mankind. So his death, 
His death brings an atonement for us unlike any other that could be brought. And when we look at this week's portion for Chukat, you had the, the story of the red heifer being cleansed from death, okay, which is a picture of the work of Yeshua. And then you have the rock that brought forth the water that sustained the children in the desert. And then it's followed by the story of the copper serpent which was raised up in the wilderness, which is in Numbers 21, 8 through 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So what happened is the serpents were biting the children of Israel and they were dying. And God gave them the solution to bring life to them. And it was a serpent listed, lifted up on a pole that if they would but look upon it, they would be healed and they would live. Now the serpent is the Nachash. And the numeric value of the Nachash is the same as the Messiah. So it can be thought of as it, when the Messiah is lifted up on the pole, all those who look to him will be healed and will live. So what we have is we have the portion begin with the picture of being cleansed from death so that we might have life. And it concludes with being healed from that which is killing us and causing us to suffer so that we might live. Both are pictures of the work of Yeshua. And right in the middle, you have the rock from which living waters comes forth. And that's what Paul actually speaks of, that rock being the rock that brought forth water in the wilderness was Messiah, right? Because he saw that it was the living waters that Yeshua brings that brings life everlasting was revealed in that rock that was there in the wilderness that was struck and poured forth of itself living waters. So you have this, you have a picture of the red heifer dying so we might live. Okay, so I mean, you have the red heifer and you have the serpent on the cross, right? You, so you have Yeshua who died so that we might live. And we have his living waters that come forth. All three great mysteries of what God was doing in this time. But one of the things that happens with the serpents, remember, God did not take away the serpents. He gave them the solution to it. Just like what we have through the work of Yeshua is we have a spiritual cleansing for entering into God's presence and to have life everlasting, but we still remain in this flesh and we still have sufferings in this life that we have to endure. Now, we've been made righteous, and we walk in righteousness, yet we still suffer. Why? Well, it may be an atonement for our own sin, but it may also be an atonement for the nations, working in concert with the work of Yeshua and bringing about the restoration, God taking our sufferings in this present day and using it for His purposes of bringing restoration and healing to others. So when we endure trials of various kinds... And we endure it with grace and with hope. It builds up grace before the eyes of God that he may pour it out on others. Right? Which is really a beautiful thing to see God give us redemption, to give us victory 
even through the midst of suffering, and to give us a hope of life that is to come. And it all begins here with this work of Yeshua that he brought about, offering himself up in faith, believing that God was able to raise him from the dead. And it's through the life of Yeshua that he now lives that we live. Right? His death made the way, but it's the life that he lives that brings us into everlasting life where we can draw close to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we love you and we bless you. We thank you for the mysteries that you have revealed in the Torah. We thank you, Lord, for how you've given us understanding of these mysteries and the great work of Yeshua. Lord, I ask that what was spoken today would stir in our hearts and minds, that we would go to even greater depths of understanding the work of Yeshua, that we might represent him in this world. Lord, I pray that you would bring us into new levels of relationship with you. May your work be accomplished in us and through us, and we give you praise and thanks in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.